The following message is brought to you by George Lawson, Jr., pastor and Bible teacher with Baltimore Bible Church. We will be reading from the New American Standard Bible. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So now let's open our Bibles and follow along with Pastor George as we loose the scriptures and let them speak. Uh. Let's take our Bibles and open up to the book of Daniel. Now we're back in the book of Daniel, chapter 7. And uh, we're returning uh, to what's been considered one of the most important prophecies in the book of Daniel and in the entire scriptures themselves. Uh, Daniel 7 is the first of four visions given directly to Daniel. Uh, before this chapter, Daniel has been interpreting dreams for the kings, but now God is giving the prophet, these visions directly. And as we pointed out last time, these visions would have come to Daniel during a time when he was largely forgotten. Largely forgotten. We have a historical marker in verse 1 of chapter 7, where it lets us know that Daniel saw dreams and visions in his mind in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. That was the, the king who arose who did not know Daniel as has been true of so many other godly men of the past. Daniel chapter 5, Daniel has to be reintroduced to King Belshazzar as a man who can interpret dreams and visions. Daniel was a a man who worked with Nebuchadnezzar, but Nebuchadnezzar is dead and gone by this point. Nebuchadnezzar died in 562 B.C. Belshazzar took the throne in 553 B.C., 11 years later. And Belshazzar doesn't even know about Daniel, doesn't even hear about him until 539, which is 23 years later. Daniel is like this this old, dusty relic as far as the kingdom's concerned, gone and forgotten. He's no longer getting the invitations to the Babylonian White House. The halls of power are no longer seeking his counsel, and his government phone is no longer ringing off the hook. But even though Babylon is silent, Daniel is receiving communication from heaven. And the question Daniel must have been wondering is, what is God's plan for all of this? What what is God doing? Under Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel was elevated to second in command. The king promoted Daniel, gave him many great gifts, made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon in Daniel chapter 2 and verse 48. Under Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel's three friends prospered. The king caused Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to prosper in the province of Babylon. And the king himself became a worshiper of the living God. But all the progress that seemed to have been made under Nebuchadnezzar was erased in the generation that followed him. And now Daniel is nothing more than a spectator in the kingdom. He's on the outside and he's looking in. And he has to be wondering, what does the the future hold for all of this? And what's the future of his people, Israel? And when could they finally look forward to a brighter tomorrow? How long, O Lord? The answer to these questions come in Daniel chapter 7. But the answer that Daniel received caused him even more distress than the question itself. Because his spirit was alarmed. He, he, he became disturbed. His face grew pale. Why? Because Daniel was informed that things are not going to get better They're actually going to get worse. The nation that you're living in is being depicted as a beast. 
And it's only going to be followed by a greater beast. And then a greater beast after that, and even a greater beast after that. And these beasts would devour and crush and trample down. And what's left over, they're going to trample with their feet. That's going to be the condition until the Ancient of Days comes to pass judgment. That's what Daniel saw. And the four beasts, as we pointed out last time, represented four kings or kingdoms, and they went from bad to worse. Let's remind ourselves of where we were back in Daniel chapter 7, starting at verse 1. It says, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. Then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind also was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one resembling a bear, and it was raised up on one side and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And thus they said to it, Arise, devour much meat. After this I kept looking. And behold, another one like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads and dominion was given to it. After this I kept looking. The night visions, and behold, the fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth that devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. It was different from all the other beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. Why don't you bow your heads with me for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord, and Father, we are so grateful for your word. Father, a word which isn't meant to just leave us in confusion, but all of your word is profitable for reproof and instruction and righteousness. And Father, we pray that we would be instructed by this word today. Father, that you would speak to us, Lord, that you would point us towards heaven, which is ultimately where this vision points us towards. Help us to point our eyes towards heaven. Help us to look up, because that's where our Redeemer comes from. So, Father, we pray that you, Lord, would be glorified in this day. And, Father, that you would use me as a weak instrument to be a blessing to your people, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Sir Robert Anderson, in his book, The Coming Prince, quotes from Ecclesiastes chapter 4 and verse 1, which says, Then I looked again at all the acts of oppression which were being done under the sun. And behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed, and that they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of their oppressors was power. On the side of their oppressors was power. But they had no one to comfort them. And he asked the question, and how can such things be? If indeed the God who rules above is almighty, and all good. Vice and godlessness and violence and wrong are rampant upon every side, and yet the heavens above keep silence. The unbeliever appeals to the fact and proof that the Christian's God is but a myth. And how many times have you heard that? You know, if if your God was real, if your God is almighty and all good, then why is the world the way that it is? How do you explain all the injustice that you see? And they, they raise that up as if this is, you know, some great argument against the truthfulness of the God of the Scriptures. Often, 
let people like that know that if there wasn't a God, what is such a thing as good or bad? I mean, why do you say that things are bad if there's not a good, if there's not a God who has a standard? You don't even have a reason to say anything is, is wrong, that anything should be done. How is anything uh, and ought to have been done in a world that's completely random and just, you know, uh, uh, random events that created life itself? There, there's no such thing as what ought to be done. But they often raise that as a, as a, a reason to, to doubt the God of the Scriptures. But this is a question that, that haunts us as well, isn't it? I mean, we do believe in a God who's all good and all knowing and all powerful. But how do things like this happen? How do oppressors gain the control? How do they get the power? And then he goes on to say this, but the day is coming when our God shall come and shall not keep silence. (laughs) There's coming a day when God will not keep silence. And there's destined a limit to the course of this present evil world. God will one day put forth his power to ensure the triumph of good. The mystery of Revelation, he says, is not that God will do this, but that he delays to do this. We know that God will. There's coming a time when God will make every wrong right. There's coming that time. The mystery is not, will he do this? The mystery is, why does he wait to do this? And the question that believers are often left with is, Lord, how long? How long? During the delay from our perspective, we wonder, how long, O Lord? And the Psalms are filled with this kind of dilemma. And they express the same kind of questions that are on our hearts. Psalm 6, verses 3 and 4. And my soul is greatly dismayed, but you, O Lord, how long? Return, O Lord, rescue my soul. Save me because of your loving kindness. Psalm 35, verse 17. Lord, how long will you look on? Rescue my soul from their ravages, my only life from the lions. Psalm 74, verse 10. How long, O God, will the adversary revile and the enemy spurn your name? Forever? (laughs) Psalm 90, verse 13. Do return, O Lord. How long will it be? And be sorry for your servants. Psalm 94, verse 3. How long shall the wicked, O Lord, how long shall the wicked exult? They seem to be triumphing, Lord. They seem to be on top. And it seems like they're getting away with it. Lord, how long are you going to allow the wicked to get away with their evil? And as Daniel receives this vision, that's exactly what these wicked nations are doing. They're exulting. They're triumphing. And what distresses Daniel to the point of becoming pale is that things are only getting worse. The first beast was like a lion, which was clearly a, a reference to the Babylonian empire. This beast was made to stand on two feet and a human mind was given to it. You know, at least there was some sanity for a period of time in the Babylonian empire as Nebuchadnezzar came to faith in the true God. He says, I raised my eyes towards heaven, chapter four and verse 34. My reason returned to me and I blessed the most high God. At least for a period of time, the Babylonian empire gained some sanity. And things started to improve for a period of time under Nebuchadnezzar. But this was soon to be washed away by the next empire that would come, the Medo-Persian Empire. Medo-Persia is pictured as a bear with three ribs between its teeth. History tells us that Medo-Persia was responsible for conquering three major territories, these three ribs, Asia Minor, also known as Lydia, 
Egypt and Babylon in 539 BC. And Israel continued to feel the grip of Gentile power under the Medo-Persians. If you remember in the book of, of Esther, King Ahasuerus was, was tricked into signing a decree to have all the Jewish people slaughtered. Remember that? Esther chapter 3 and verse 13. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, men and women, children in one day. That's the kind of, of, of oppression that the Jewish people lived under. God's intervention spared the Jewish people, but Medo-Persia was the empire that devoured much meat. And it was followed by the kingdom of Greece, which in Daniel's vision is described as a leopard with wings. Under Alexander the Great, Greece conquered all of the known world in only 10 years, and that's fast. Never lost a battle. By the age of 30, he created one of the largest empires of the ancient world, and he is said to have wept while still in his 20s because there was no more land to conquer. The speed of his conquest was incredible, which is why he's pictured as a leopard with, with wings, so fitting for the kingdom of Greece. And Israel came under Greek rule in 331 B.C., and the rule of Greece was only followed up by a brief period of independence before Rome swallowed up Israel. 63 B.C., Jerusalem was invaded. The Roman general Pompey profaned the Jewish temple by entering into the Holy of Holies and putting an end to the century of Jewish independence. And the Roman Empire is described as this, this beast with no name. Like, I, I can't even describe this monster that sprawled across the ancient world. At its peak in 117 AD, the Roman Empire covered some 2.3 million square miles over three continents, Africa, Asia, and Europe, and was estimated to have perhaps 60 million people living underneath its borders. And here's the terrifying reality that Daniel saw. And we'll take some time and unpack it today. But this fourth beast, this indescribable monster, has descendants. <laughs> this indescribable monster has descendants. And out of this ancient beast come these horns. And then another horn that will boast great things and wear down the saints of God. And we haven't seen the end of it yet. And here's the, the simple principle that we pointed to last week that will give us a lot of help as we're interpreting prophecy, is what we haven't seen in the past, we look forward to seeing in the future. What hasn't been done in the past, we look forward to seeing in the future. And that's the way we understand the prophecies concerning Christ, isn't it? There's all these prophecies concerning Christ that were fulfilled in His first coming. The, the virgin birth, the miraculous life, His death on a cross, His resurrection, all fulfilled in His first coming. But then there's these other prophecies regarding Christ, his return to the Mount of Olives, coming on the clouds of heaven, the nation of Israel looking on him whom they have pierced. These are prophecies as well concerning Christ, but they haven't been fulfilled yet. So if they haven't been fulfilled in the past, we look forward to them being fulfilled in the future. And the same is true about this fourth beast that was different from the rest. Rome has already fulfilled the first part of this prophecy. It was dreadful, terrifying, it devoured, it crushed, it trampled the earth. But the, the ten horns and the little horn that rose up among them, uttering great boasts, has not happened yet in history. And Daniel asked for an explanation about this. He, he's even drawn to this. And we're told that the details matter. 
And what I want to do for the remainder of our time is to help you understand that we still live among beasts and the beast slayer will return. The beast slayer is going to return and I pray this is helpful for you. Let's take a look at uh, uh, chapter 7, look at verse 15 and let's uh, jump in with Daniel's concern. That's the first part in verses 15 and 16, Daniel's concern. Look at verse 15 with me. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me, and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. I approached one of those who were standing by and began asking him the exact meaning of all this. So he told me, the details don't matter. I'm just joking. He told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. He's distressed. Daniel's distressed. Literally, it means to contract, to be cut short. And when he says he had this, this within him, he was distressed within himself, that word for within himself was used for a sword being put into its sheath. It's like, like Daniel was closed in on himself, kind of curled up in grief. And he kept being alarmed by these visions in his mind. So he approaches one of those who's standing by in this vision. And this is one of the the myriads of myriads attending the throne of the Ancient of Days in verse 10. And we'll get back to that next week, Lord willing. But there's these thousands upon thousands and ten thousands that are before the throne. And Daniel approaches one of these beings, one of these attendants around the throne. Who are these attendants around the throne? Revelation Chapter 5 and verse 11 says, Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. Same kind of language used in Daniel. Saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And it would make sense that Daniel, if he's seeking out an interpretation like somebody, does somebody know what's going on here? It would make sense that he would approach one of these angels. Can can you explain this to me? Later on in the book of Daniel in chapter 8 and verse 16, chapter 9 and verse 21, it lets us know that the angel Gabriel was the one responsible for giving Daniel interpretations of his visions. And it makes sense that it would either be Gabriel or some other angel here that's giving him insight, giving him instruction about these things. In chapter 8, verse 16, he says, I heard the voice of a man between the banks of Uli, and he called out and said, Gabriel, give this man an understanding of the vision. In chapter 9, he says, while I was still speaking in prayer, now chapter 9, verse 21, uh, then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. He gave me instruction and talked with me and said, oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. So, so who's responsible in the book of Daniel for giving Daniel insight, for giving Daniel understanding? It was the angels. Angels are also interpreters of scripture and visions. And Daniel wants to know, what's, what's the interpretation? What do these things mean? And he receives this very basic interpretation of the vision. Look at verses 17 and 18. We looked at this last time. These great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will arise from the earth, but the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. That's the angel's interpretation, verses 17 and 18. And the angel specifies the number of beasts that Daniel has already seen. As if to say, just in case you missed it, there's, there's four beasts. And these four beasts are four kings. So, so the number here was significant. It's not some kind of general picture of the sweep of 
human history. You know, these are four kings or four kingdoms. You know, kings and kingdoms are used interchangeably in chapter 7 down in verse 23. It says the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth. So kings and kingdoms used interchangeably. But there's a specific number of kingdoms that he has in mind. And he says these will arise from the earth, but the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom. And the way that Daniel would have understood that term kingdom would have been for a kingdom on the earth. That's how Daniel uses the term kingdom. Verse 23 specifically references the kingdoms on the earth. And if you look down at verse 27 in Daniel 7, it says here that uh, then sovereignty, the dominion, the greatness of all the kingdoms, where under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. Under the heaven means on the earth, right? On the earth. Under the heaven is another way of saying on the earth. And that's what's kind of from cover to cover what we find in Scripture. Matthew 5, verse 5, Blessed are the meek or the gentle, for they shall what? Inherit the earth. It's a consistent promise across the Scriptures. And that was the summary of the vision that was given to Daniel. But Daniel's still confused about the details of this vision. So he asked for more clarification. And he specifically wants to know about three features, okay? Three features, three specific features of this vision. He wants to know about the fourth beast. He wants to know about the ten horns. And he wants to know about the little horn. The fourth beast, the ten horns, and the little horn. This is Daniel's confusion that he's wanting clarification on. Look at verse 19. So says, then I desire to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast. That's the first aspect, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful with its teeth of iron, its claws of bronze, and which devoured, crushed, and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And the meaning of the ten horns. That's the second aspect he wants to know about that were on his head. And the other horn. That's the third aspect he wants to know about, which came up and before which three of them fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth uttering great boast and which was larger in appearance than its associates. I kept looking and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them until the ancient of days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the highest one. And the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. Daniel wants to know more about that, that fourth beast. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of beasts in the vision, but that fourth one, something is different than different. Something's beyond different about this fourth beast. I want to know about this one. It's indescribable. Not only did it have the teeth of iron, but the claws of bronze. It seemed to take in aspects of the other kingdoms of Daniel chapter 2. So his attention is drawn here. And out of all the things that he could have asked about the beast, why the horns? Why, why does he want to know about these horns? That there was something that made him give greater consideration to the horns, and that's by design. It's almost like, like in the vision there was a close-up on the horns of the beast. Out of all the features that could have been picked up, that's what becomes prominent. And then below the surface of the ten horns, he sees a a, a little horn kind of poking up and displacing the three, three of the original ten. You know, almost like a like a tooth kind of, you know, you know, growing up and kind of displacing the tooth above it. He sees this horn kind of pushing its way up and displacing three of the original ten. It starts out small and then it grows bigger and overpowers the others. What's the meaning of this? And this is where the angel's clarification comes in. And the longer I spend time in this chapter, the more clear it is to me that we haven't seen all of this yet. Okay? Look at verse 23. This is the angel's clarification. Thus he said, the fourth beast 
will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. And we understand again, that's a reference to the Roman Empire. That's happened. But what hasn't happened yet? Look at verse 24. As for the 10 horns, out of this kingdom, 10 kings will arise. And another will arise after them. And he will be different from the previous ones. And will subdue three kings. He will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the highest one. And he will intend to make alterations in times and in law. And they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court will sit for judgment and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all the dominions will serve and obey him. As I said before, the, the Roman Empire came and crushed all that came in its path. The kingdom was extensive. The empire lasted well beyond the time of Christ, 500 years in the, in the West, 1,500 years in the East, almost 1,500 years in the East, different than any kingdom that came before it. But the 10 kings or kingdoms that arise out of the Roman kingdom hasn't happened yet. And I've actually spent some time reading a number of commentaries that, that try to make sense of the 10 kings. And even they will affirm, even those that don't agree with our eschatology, that there is no clear antecedent to this in history. I have a number of really helpful commentaries by authors, again, who, who don't share my, my view. But they'll admit that we haven't seen this kind of 10 king confederacy in history. One author writes this, the number 10 may be merely indicative of, complete li- of completeness and need not be taken as absolutely literal. So what does the number four mean then? Is the, the number four just representative of something else? Are we not to take that literally either? I mean, I can understand that the myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands and tens of thousands, like, you know, we're just saying it's a very large group that we're not counting. But that's a lot different than saying four. I can count to four. And I can also count to ten. And I can also see one and, you know, poking up and displacing three. Like, I, I can deal with those numbers. Why would that be figurative? And here's another thing. You know, people say, look at this and say, oh, that's, that's prophecy. That's prophecy. You can't, you can't interpret those things literally. It's, it's apocalyptic literature. But here's, here's the problem with that. The angel is trying to explain the prophecy. So, so he's saying like, hey, let me, in case you didn't understand what this means, let me put it in plain language for you so that you can understand what might be figurative. You know, those, those, that, that, those beasts, they're representative of kingdoms. That's real. And then he talks about these horns. Those horns that you saw, those are 10 kings. Let me explain the prophecy to you. I'm not trying to be figurative here. I'm trying to help you out, Daniel. <laughs> You came to me for an explanation. Let me help you out. This is what this means. So, so why would you now go into the interpretation, the explanation, and now say, well, that's really figurative. And 10 is just a number for completeness. That's not what the angel said. The angel said, these 10 horns are 10 kings. Like, that's, that's what it means. You want to know what it means? That's what it means. And the commentators agree that this has not yet happened in history, which is why I believe the Roman Empire is a sleeping beast. It's been taken down, it's been taken out, but out of the ashes, 
will arise these horns that will do exactly what we see in this passage. Daniel 7.24, as for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings will arise. And it would be foolish for us to try to identify who those ten kings are or who those ten kingdoms are. We're not into newspaper exegesis. I'm not picking up the, the, the morning news and saying, I, I think I can figure this out. I know who the ten are. We're not, we're not into that. We're not doing that. We're not trying to define who the countries are. We're not saying it's this coalition, that coalition. The text doesn't give us that information. But what the text does say is that it's going to be ten. And it's going to arise out of the Roman Empire. And if it hasn't happened yet, then it has to happen in the future. And finally... The text goes on to say that there's going to be this little horn who will arise after these kings. After the ten, there's going to come an eleventh. Rise up. Not now, but he will rise up. (laughs) He will rise up after these kings. And we can start to put a picture together about who this little horn is. Listen to the details of the text, okay? This is who this little horn is. Number one, he comes from small beginnings, but he rises quickly to power and he subdues three kings. That's in verse eight. He possesses eyes like a man, which can be used to speak about uh, great perception, great intelligence. In the book of Ezekiel, another exilic prophet, Ezekiel 40 and verse four, uh, he says, see with your eyes, hear with your ears, give attention to all that I'm going to show you. You know, so it's speaking about perception, understanding. So that these, these eyes like a man, it's, it's a reference to great understanding, great perception, great intelligence. It says that he has a mouth that utters great boasts. He speaks boastful and blasphemous words in verse 8. He even speaks out against the Most High in verse 25. He'll seek to make alterations in time and law. He's, he's seeking to change everything. Like, I'm the definer of culture. I will define it for myself. I'm the one who's going to change everything. Everything is going to revolve around me. He becomes greater than his contemporaries. He becomes larger in appearance than his associates. So uh, at first he comes small and then he becomes larger. Now he's greater than everybody else around him. What else does he do? Verse 21, he wages war with the saints of the highest one. Not only is he an enemy of God, he's an enemy of the people of God. Overpowers them, wears them down like wearing out an old garment. And he does this until, 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 that's an important word, until the Ancient of Days passes judgment and he's given to the burning fire and the Son of Man comes on the clouds. Until that happens, this is what the case is going to be. And this power is going to be given to him. Listen to this. For time, times, and half a time. He's going to have just free reign to do what he wants to do. This little horn going to have free reign to do what he wants to do for time, times, and half a time. If you remember back in uh, Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar was told that he would be drenched with the dew of heaven for seven periods of time. What did that equal? That was seven years. Seven seven cycles, you know. Seven seven times you're going to be drenched with dew for these seven periods of time. It was seven years, seven cycles. So when Daniel refers to time, times, and half a time, what is, he, what is he saying? Time would be one. Times is 
two, it's, it's used in a dual sense, a pair. So it's time, one, times, two, and half a time. What is that? You guys are really smart. Three and a half. Three and a half. That's one plus two plus a half. Three and a half. Is there anyone in the biblical record that matches this kind of description that we can find anywhere? Does the Bible speak of a world ruler who will take on these characteristics? Why don't you uh, take your Bibles with me and we'll go on a little tour of the scriptures. Flip over to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 13. There's a reason that we chose to study the book of Daniel before we picked up the book of Revelation because the book of Daniel gives us a, a necessary background for the book of, of Revelation. And it is scary how perfectly this fits. This is scary. Look at Revelation chapter 13. It says, And the dragon, another name for, for Satan, stood on the sand of the seashore. Then I saw a beast coming out of the sea. Haven't we seen that before? Beasts coming out of the sea. Having, listen to this, ten horns. And seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems. These are ten kingdoms. I mean, the diadems, you know, kingly crowns. Ten heads, ten horns, ten diadems. And on his heads were blasphemous names. Remember, again, this, this one that we read about speaks against the Most High. Blasphemous. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard. And his feet were like those of a bear. And his mouth was like the mouth of a, a lion. Leopards and bears and lions, oh my. We, we've seen these creatures before, haven't we? Leopards, bears, lions. That's the picture of the kingdoms of the world that were swallowed up by the beast. So the beast is taking on these characteristics of these former kingdoms. The, the leopard, the bear, the lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. He's a world ruler. He rises to power under satanic Influence. The dragon gives him his power, his throne, great authority. He's in charge. He's a ruler. Verse 3, I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain and his fatal wound was healed and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. So there was some kind of signs and wonders associated with this beast and false worship. They worshiped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast and they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast? And who is able to wage war with him? He's waging war. There was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months. How long is that? 12 plus 12 plus 12, class 36, and half of 12, 36 plus 6, 42 months. Do you know how long 42 months is? Three and a half years. Three and a half years. And if that's not specific enough, in Revelation 12 and verse 6, it calls it a 1,260 days, which is three and a half years. I mean, just over and over and over again. It's confirmed. Verse 6, and he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name in his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. It was also given to him to make war with the who? The saints. And to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. Over the whole earth. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world. In the book of life of the Lamb 
who has been slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. You, you can't make this up. <laughs> I mean, this is like, like the hand in the glove. Flip over to Revelation 17. Revelation 17. Look at verse 12. Who does it say these, these ten horns are? Revelation 17, verse 12. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they will receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. These have one purpose, and they give their power and authority to the beast. These will wage war against the lamb, and the lamb will overcome them because he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and those who are with him are the called and chosen and faithful. Who's the one that's going to put a stop to this beast? It's the lamb who overcomes. The lamb who overcomes will put a stop to this beast. Flip over to 2 Thessalonians. We learn a little bit more about this uh, ruler. 2 Thessalonians, look at chapter 2. In Thessalonica, there were a group of believers who were concerned that they might have missed out on the second coming of Christ and the gathering together to be with him, which is a reference to the rapture of the church. Over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, it speaks about that. Those who are alive and remain will be caught up together. But there were some believers who thought that they might have missed out on this. They were left behind. And they're, they're in the tribulation. But listen to what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Look at verse 1. He says, Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message, or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. You know, again, as if we're now in the great tribulation. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come until the apostasy comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Who, who is this man of lawlessness and son of destruction? He's the one who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. We're talking about the same one of Daniel chapter 7. He's the beast of Revelation. He's the little horn of Daniel chapter 7. He's the man of lawlessness, the son of perdition, the son of destruction. But there's one more title for this man that I want you to see. 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. Look at verse 18, 1 John 2 and verse 18. And this is how John refers to him. He says, children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. When John refers to that ruler who is to come, He refers to him as the Antichrist. And he says he's coming. You know that he's coming. You've heard that he's coming. And I'm confirming to you that yes, he is coming. And even right now, there are many Antichrists. But there's the capital A Antichrist who is still to come. He is Antichrist. The the Greek prefix means he is against, opposed. He fights against Christ, anti. But anti can also mean in the place of. He tries to replace Christ. 
even tries to present himself as an object of, of worship. And John says, there are many who are trying to do this in the world, but there is one who is coming, and everybody's going to fall in line under him. The Apostle John lived during the time of Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius, Nero. They were antichrists, but they were not the antichrist. He would have stood firm against false teachings like Gnosticism, Judaistic legalism, Gentile paganism. All of that was antichrist, but it still wasn't part of what would become the antichrist. And according to John, he says, he's still future. He's coming. Not that he's here, he's coming. There are many antichrists, but there's one who's still to come. The book of Revelation, which we read from, was written in the last decade of the first century. In the 90s, 90s A.D., during Domitian's reign, which is after 70 A.D. And John still is saying, it hasn't happened yet. I'm still looking in the future. These ten kings have not yet received their kingdom. That's what it said, right? I'm still looking forward to these ten kings receiving their kingdom. It hasn't happened yet. And these will wage war against the Lamb, and it hasn't happened yet. The, the, the beast is still on the loose. So you can understand why Daniel's face grew pale. His thoughts greatly alarmed him. He's like Solomon, who writes in Ecclesiastes, I looked again at the acts of oppression that were being done under the sun. Behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed, that they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of their oppressors was power. The beast is still on the loose. These nations, they're still on the loose. They're still warring. And there's still one who's to come. There's many antichrists. We're still under oppression. But there's that one who's still to come. And, and Daniel just, I mean, he's just torn up on the inside. He's just like curled up like a sword in a sheath. It's just like kind of folding in on himself. He's just so broken up about what's to happen. And the question could be, Lord, how long? How long is this going to happen? How long will this continue? Do you know that's the same question that the tribulation saints ask? Same question. Flip over to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6. Look at verse 9. It's during this period of tribulation. Verse 9 says, When the, the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar... The souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord? How long, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? How long, O Lord? And their prayers are a recognition that God, you can do something. You can do something. Let me remind you that the, the one who gave time, times, and half a time into the hand of the, the little horn, who, who do you think it was that, that gave that over to him? It was the Lord. The wind of the heavens were stirring up the seas. The beasts were coming out. God's over it all. Just as we find that Job was in Satan's hands, but who had given him over into Satan's hands? God did that. Christ gave Satan permission to sift Peter like wheat. Christ did that. Who lets the beast off the leash? The Lord did that. Why, Lord? Why? 
Why is power in the hands of the oppressors, Lord? Let me give you a couple reasons and we'll, we'll close with this. Number one, it puts the power of God on display. Puts the power of God on display. How? Because even Satan, when he wants to do his worst, and humanity is unhinged, even when that happens, doing their best to attack God, God is still sitting on his throne undisturbed. Thrones were set up and the Ancient of Days took his seat. There's no panic in heaven. When When the world comes up with the greatest rebellion they can come up with, the greatest they can muster, what does Psalm 2 says? He who sits in the heavens laughs. It's like the Tower of Babel where the collective rebellion of the world is gathered and God has to come down even to see the little tower that they put up. Like, like God is in control. The heaven, heaven doesn't have a panic button, okay? There, there are no alarm systems in heaven. He doesn't need an emergency plan. And God is letting Satan do his worst only to demonstrate that I have infinite power. Number two, it puts the patience of God on display. Why, Lord, why do you allow things to go on the way that they do for so long? From our perspective, it looks like justice is way overdue, right? We look around us and wonder, how much worse does it have to get before you do something, God? How long, O Lord, will the adversary revile and the enemy spurn your name forever? (laughs) Is this just going to keep happening? But here's the beauty of God's patience. Even God's patience with those who revile, it's because some of us used to be those revilers. We used to be those revilers. Titus chapter 3. Why don't you flip over to Titus chapter 3 real quick. Love this this passage. Reminds us, and, and, and here's the, the context. It, it reminds us to, to pray for our rulers, be subject to rulers, authorities, obedient to those oppressive powers. To malign no one, to be peaceful, gentle, showing every consideration. Why? Verse 3. For we also once were foolish. Ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy. Hateful, hating one another. That used to be us. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy. Why why does God have mercy on these revilers and persecutors? Because that used to be you. And God had mercy on you, didn't he? God brought you to himself. Why do you wait so long, O Lord? Because there's some of those out there that I've chosen for myself, and I'm going to bring them in. And I'm waiting to bring down the hammer because I'm bringing my sheep home. God's going to leave the door open until the last of his elect comes in. Number three, it puts the, puts the plan of God on display. God has a, a plan for unleashing the beast. And part of his plan is for the salvation of Israel. And we'll, we'll get into this more as we go through, through Daniel. But Daniel has a specific burden. He's got a burden for his people, Israel. In Daniel chapter 9 and verse 20 says, Now while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people, Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God and behalf of the holy mountain of God, he's praying for his people, for the city of Israel, the city of Jerusalem. And one of Daniel's main questions is going to be, what's going to happen to my people? Unleashing the beast is one of the tools that God uses to bring those people in. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 30. When you are in distress 
and all these things have come upon you, in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God. Why, why, why does the Lord bring distress? Unleash the beast. Because there are some who are going to turn to the Lord when they've been put under distress. And they will listen to his voice. Deuteronomy 4 verse 30. Jeremiah 30 verse 7 says, Alas, for that day is great, there is none like it. And it is the time of Jacob's distress, specifically for Israel, but he will be saved from it. In Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1, it says, And there will be a time of distress such as has never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who was found written in the book, will be rescued. There's a divine plan to bring in those who God is rescuing. And God will even use the beast to do it. To chase them back home. (laughs) Cause them distress until they come home and look on the one whom they have pierced. The power of God is on display. The patience of God is on display. The plan of God is on display. And finally, the punishment of God will be on display. The day is coming when our God shall come and he will not keep silent. And God will be glorified even in the judgment of the wicked. And there's going to be no question about whether or not his punishment is just. There's not going to be any question about that. Why? Because he's waited so long to bring it. So when God finally brings it, it's like, well, it's obvious. I mean, I I have no problems with that. Do you? (laughs) Of course. So so God, he he waits. He's patient. He's long-suffering. So when the punishment finally comes, there's nobody that's giving him any lip. (laughs) Of course, God, you're right. I, I put my hands over my mouth. There's nothing that I have to say. And when the court sits and the books are opened, it's all going to be obvious that the punishment is deserved. And one day, my friends, the books will be opened on your life. The books are going to be opened. But if your name is found written in the Lamb's book of life, you will be rescued. For those of us who trust in Jesus Christ, our names are written in the book of life. We're rescued. But if your name is not found in that book of life, there's going to be another book. There's going to be a book that records every detail of every one of your sins. This book's going to be opened up. The Bible says in Psalm 130, verse 3, If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who would stand? Who, who would stand in a judgment like that? Psalm 1 and verse 5, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the day of judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. Because you'll stand before the Lord with the sins of your entire life on your record. And there won't be one excuse that you could give to God. And one thing you won't be able to say is that God didn't give me an opportunity. Because you have the opportunity right now. Today is the day of salvation. Run to Christ. Turn to Christ. You have no excuses. And God is a just judge. And either his son takes upon himself the penalty of your sins, or you will retain your sins and receive the just punishment. And there won't be a thing that you can say in your defense because it's all recorded. It's all written down. There's coming a time where we can be thankful that God is patient and that God has given those 
who he's calling to himself an opportunity to repent. He's going to bring every one of his elect home. And we know that one day we won't have to say how long, O Lord, because God will finally mete out the punishment for those who are worthy of it. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, so much for uh, this opportunity that we've had to look at the book of Daniel. And uh, Father, what a, what a rich book this is. So instructive, Lord, so helpful. And uh, Father, we uh, look forward to uh, continuing uh, through this book and, and looking at the, the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man, the, the one who will come on the clouds of, of heaven, the one who will finally put an end to all the oppression that we've seen across the, the globe. So many have been oppressed. So many millions have died. Even in our own country, millions. Even in the womb, millions. Father, oppression is just rampant across the world. But Father, there's coming a time when the Ancient of Days will take his seat in the court and the Son of Man will come back on the clouds of heaven and every eye will see him. <laughs> the, the one who, who makes all things right and the one who is given the right to rule. Father, we look forward to our Savior and our King. In Jesus' name we praise you and give you thanks. Amen. You have been listening to George Lawson Jr. of Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events and where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserves all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating all printed media, CDs, and digital files.